The Bible reading is from Mark chapter 15, verse 42, to Mark 16, verse 8. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, we're going to spend a bit of time thinking uh, about the events recounted in that Bible reading this morning. In, my, in our bedroom at home, we have a picture of my kids, and it's a picture with my daughter actually meeting her brother, Sam, soon after he was born. She's got a huge smile on her face. Uh, she looks really happy. I do remember it, actually, because she was very excited about having a younger brother. You might, you might have had this conversation with a, a young child awaiting their sibling's birth. She was very excited about the birth of a younger brother. But then when Sam arrived, uh, the excitement only lasted for about 10 minutes because she had envisaged in Sam a ready-made playmate. But, of course, when you're just two days old, one day old, you can't do much apart from cry and feed. And so what was meant to be a great moment in her life appeared like a complete non-event. She was underwhelmed by it. Of course, the reality is now I look back, especially at this time of isolation, I see the gift of a sibling is an extraordinary gift for her, uh, generally in her life and even now. For those who have single children or know are a single child, you will understand how much of a blessing it can be to have a sibling. Often in life, actually, we have these moments which, uh, which are at first glance underwhelming but turn out to be extraordinary moments. It's true, of course, in, in, in world history, isn't it? Uh, when someone assassinated the Archduke in the, 1800s, no one thought, uh, in the 1900s, no one thought that it would result in the start of a world war. When the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, they probably didn't realize the ramifications of their decision at that point in time, the course of the Second World War. And even as we saw planes fly into the Twin Towers, at that very moment, we didn't realize the kind of impact that those moments might have on us geopolitically. It's always in hindsight that we understand the value of a moment. 
Now, as we, as we come to the events that are recounted for us at the end of Mark's uh, story of Jesus' life, a similar, a similar experience is taking place. It's a couple of days after the Passover festival. Uh, and, and the nation of Israel is, in a sense, recovering from a great moment of celebrating for them personally. The women who we meet in the account are also coming down from an emotional high. Well, it's actually a very deep emotional low. They're recovering from what they see as the most horrific moment in history, certainly their own personal history, where their friend, their leader, their teacher, their hope has died an inglorious death on the cross. And as they walk to the, to their, to the tomb that they know that he's buried in, their thoughts are more for the mundane things, like who will roll the stone away, who will get the logistics done for us. And even when they see the empty tomb, what grasps them is fear, uncertainty, anxiety. Uh, they are just overwhelmed by the moment, but they don't see it in its bigger picture. What the Bible tells us, though, is that this moment is actually the most significant moment in history the most significant moment in history. This is the turning point of all human history. Maybe you disagree with me. Maybe you think, even if the resurrection was true, it's just a moment for a group of people. But consider this. Up until, say, February this year, did you know anything about a 1918 flu epidemic, the Spanish flu, which killed 50 million people? Now, that only happened 100 years ago. We look at our moment and our time and we think this is the most significant moment in history. And on one level it is. But it's probably likely if 100 years passes from now, many people, most people, will not remember this moment at all. Contrast that with Easter. 2,000 years later, people are still speaking about this moment. Think about Jesus. In Jesus' time, of course, he was a well-known leader, but most historians will agree that in his life, at least, uh, Jesus was not the most well-known Jewish leader that existed. There are others, actually, who were better known in, as his contemporaries. About 2,000 years later, no one remembers their name and everyone remembers Jesus' name. And consider the culture that we inhabit, the place, the world that we inhabit, so many of the moral structures, the civil structures that we live under, that we report to, are, are informed by Jesus' teaching, by his view, by his ethical mindset. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, we see the, we see the foundation stones for many of the ways that we think that society and culture should act, such as the impact of Jesus. But don't just consider it from an institutional perspective or from a civil perspective think about it personally did you know that over 2.5 billion people in some way follow jesus christ in this world 2.5 billion people and all of this started in 30 a.d or thereabouts when a carpenter started preaching living and ultimately died on a cross only to rise three days later that's the kind of impact that Easter has on the world. That's the kind of history-shaping, history-turning moment that Easter really is. 
Now, you may disagree about whether or not it should have that impact, but none of us can disagree about the reality that it has had that kind of impact. And the question that is before us, I guess, is why does Easter have that kind of impact? I think Easter has its, this kind of impact on us and on our culture because of what it's claiming happened. It's very interesting, actually. The Bible makes a very clear claim. The first is that Jesus really did die. In fact, those early verses that Ben read to us for this morning's service recount the last moments of, on the cross and Jesus' burial, where he really was dead. In fact, it, Mark goes to the point of uh, pointing out that, in fact, it's the, the Romans, Pilate, confirms Jesus' death. Why does he do that? Because the Romans knew how to kill people. They knew how to kill people. And Jesus was definitely dead. And he was definitely buried in a tomb. Jesus really was dead. And then the Bible says, Jesus really was risen. Uh, the angel points to the empty tomb. There is no body there. This is not a metaphorical resurrection. This is not just a a philosophy that will lift up our lives. This is a physical truth. Jesus was resurrected. And the thing about the Bible is that there is a constant call to see the historical truth of this event. Uh, the, the angel inviting the women to see where the body lay is like an invitation, not just to them, but to every generation after that to do the hard work, ask the historical questions, see the proofs, believe the truth. And throughout the New Testament, we get numerous proofs about this. There's, of course, the empty tomb, which we read about here in Mark's Gospel and other accounts. There are those who actually touched Jesus and saw his wounds. He was physically resurrected. And it was the same person who had died on the cross there are those who ate with Jesus. And there are those who witnessed his life after the resurrection. In fact, we have five different written accounts which were preserved by the early church. And then on top of that, we have over 500 people who saw him and who could verify to the early church in those weeks, months and years after the resurrection that this had really happened. The Bible doesn't just hold up a great story, a legend, a myth that we might all cling to and find hope in in the times of darkness, but it holds up a historical moment, an earth-shaping moment when Jesus Christ came back to life. Now, we live in a time and a place where truth is hard to garner. Uh, perhaps you just have been reading through the newspapers looking for good news, how many claims there are to cures and treatments that work, and repeatedly, government authorities need to come out and debunk them. And the reality is, of course, after a couple of days, experts speak about it, and the effectiveness of treatments are proven to be ineffective, and lies are shown to be lies. But the Bible has always believed in truth. It's always believed in truth. And that's, in fact, why Mark points out that the first eyewitnesses are women in this account. The sad reality was in biblical times, the eyewitness account of women was not highly valued. If the Bible wanted to present a story which people would readily believe, 
then perhaps they would have left out the eyewitness accounts of the women. But the Bible believes in truth and the first people to witness evidence of the resurrected Jesus were the women. And so it's the women that we hear from. In other accounts, we also see not just that they witnessed an empty tomb, but they actually met the resurrected Jesus. The Bible believes in truth. And so over 2,000 years, the claims of the resurrection of Jesus Christ have been presented over and over again. Skeptic upon skeptic has reached to try and debunk the truth of the resurrection. But the reality is that over and over, this profound truth that Jesus Christ came back to life was physically resurrected from the dead, has held firm. And I guess I want to use this moment to challenge you. If you don't believe that, if you're not sure about that, take up the angel's invitation. Do the work. Test the evidence. See if what Christians have believed for over 2,000 years, what people have built their lives upon for over 2,000 years is true. As I said in the, in the notices earlier in the service, one of the ways you can do that is by doing the Simply Christianity course that we're running later on via Zoom in May. This is a great opportunity. You don't need to wait till then, though. You can start reading the Gospels now and asking the questions yourself. But the course will certainly be a great space for you to ask your questions and maybe to find some answers as well. Take up the invitation of the angels. But I think the resurrection changes the world, not just because it's true and it's extraordinary. There are lots of true and extraordinary things which have happened, but fail to change the world, at the re- unlike the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No, the reason the resurrection changed the world the way it is because it offered a kind of hope that no one else could offer. See, when Jesus Christ came back to life, he showed a profound truth. He showed not just that God understands our suffering. We talked about suffering on Good Friday. Not just that God understands our suffering or even has borne some suffering for us so that we don't have to bear it. No, but in the resurrection, Jesus Christ has defeated the power behind suffering, which is sin and death itself. What the centurion said, and which we read on Good Friday, is surely true. The Son of God was there on the cross But what the empty tomb says is, the Son of God lives and reigns now. The one who was crowned on the cross, who showed his love in sacrifice, now reigns in glory and power. And the resurrection is the declaration that the greatest power which we have known as humanity, which is death, has been overcome. Has been overcome. Martin Luther, who was a... Uh, a theologian from the 1500s, a very long time ago, but understood, understood the power of death and pestilence and plague well, wrote this. Christ, who is God's power, righteousness, blessing, grace and life, overcomes and carries away these monsters, sin, death and curse. And that is the extraordinary truth of the resurrection. Jesus Christ has overcome the great monsters of our life, sin, death, and curse. And if Jesus Christ's death was a death for you, then his resurrection is a life for you. If Jesus Christ took the guilt of sin away from you, then his resurrection has destroyed the power of sin over you. 
the resurrection has the capability to present you with an extraordinary hope, something to look forward to in the midst of darkness. But here's the thing. The resurrection also has the capacity to change your life here and now. It has the capacity to free you from fear. You know what's really interesting about Mark's story? He ends with the women running away in fear. But the other Gospels tell us that eventually those women really understood what had taken place. And their lives, like the lives of the disciples, were remarkably changed because they were released from fear. So much of our life we live in fear of death right now. But the resurrection releases us from that. I want you to do a thought experiment with me before we finish. Currently, Powerball is apparently $13 million. Imagine, imagine it's not the, uh, it's, it's not shut down and your life is as normal and you were given a Powerball winning ticket, $13 million. Now here is the question I have for you. You go to bed, what do you do the next morning? Do you set your alarm for six o'clock, have your breakfast, drag yourself out of the house, get on the bus, go to work, jam into a busy train perhaps, have a stressful client meeting at 8.30, rush for deadlines till lunch, smash in a 15-minute lunch before you're back in the office, you work till 7.30, you get home, you missed saying goodnight to the kids, you finish a little bit more work off, you have a glass of wine, you go to bed. Is that the kind of life that you're going to live? Well, you might live it for one day, but you won't live it past that, will you? Why not? Because your life has changed. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a $13 million Powerball lottery ticket. It's the gift of life eternal. And the call of the scriptures is, don't let this moment pass you by. Don't be underwhelmed by the resurrection, but let the extraordinary truth that Jesus Christ came back from the dead and lives and reigns and is in charge and is bringing about a hope, a glory, a gift of eternal life. Let that truth resonate in your hearts and free you from fear. Because the great hallmark of God's people is that they are no longer fearful, but they have grasped grace and glory and gift in the Lord Jesus Christ.